This airplane ride that I took yesterday. Oh my God. I just want to ask, like everyone in the Chicago area, are you okay? Because that was like the most disastrous, like, okay, the airport was so full, so full. All these people, no masks. And, like, you know the people who aren't wearing... Like, I understand that the CDC came out and were like... Oh, it wasn't that people were wearing no masks. It's that they had their masks on and they were, like, had their noses sticking out. People were sitting on the floor eating food. There were just, like, children on the ground rolling around, like, screaming. Um, so many screaming children on my flight. Uh, and I... <laughs> I was so busy this weekend that I saved my case up until I was like, the only time I have to do this is on this flight. So I paid $8 to get Wi-Fi so I could write this script. And there was just screaming children the entire time. Um, so life hack, in case you are on a plane and there's kids that are just screaming, if you take your neck pillow and put it over your ears, so you look like a stupid lion and like you can even like press your ears up against it to really hold it down, really hold it down. Uh, that actually surprisingly blocks out the sound of screaming children very well. Alternatively, scream back. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc, etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pinkcollar underscore pod. Our theme this week is, well, you gave me a couple, so you don't even really know what, what I decided with. But so we are doing women who have attempted or have assassinated celebrities. But before get started there guys please subscribe to our podcast on apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening um on apple Podcasts, if you could leave us a review that would just make us so so happy for every review we get we don't we will donate a dollar to the national center for victims of crime um and on that note Um, so guys, I believe it's my turn to go first because you went first last week. So I will be doing the case of Sarah Jane Moore. Um, so there are only two women that I guess are known to the general public that have attempted to assassinate an American president. And both of the women who attempted to assassinate someone, it was the same guy. So it was Gerald Ford 
they both made their attempts in California, and they both took place within two weeks of each other. I apologize for how I pronounce the word both. Um, I just repeated it a lot in that sentence, so that's why. <laughs> both. Both. There's an L so in there, guys. <laughs> both. I'm pretty sure you've made fun of me for that before. It's, okay. um, it's your dialect. It's okay. Anywho, um, both took place within two weeks of each other. So what the heck was going on in the mid 1970s. Um, so I'm going to take a closer look at the second assassination attempt committed by Sarah Jane Moore. Um, uh, the other one was, I forget her name. Well, her first name's Squeaky. She was a, a Manson girl, so maybe we'll cover that one on a different episode. Um, so that one was like Manson family related. This one was completely separate, actually. Um, what a popular so, guy. I know, or unpopular, I mean. Exactly. Sarcasm, Rachel, come on. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, Sarah Jane Moore was born in Charleston, West Virginia, to Ruth and Olaf Kahn. I can't take that name seriously anymore after Frozen. But Sarah had attended nursing school. She was a Women's Army Corps recruit, and she was also an accountant. By 1975, Sarah had been divorced five times and had four children before she turned to revolutionary politics. Um, so her first two husbands had served in the military, second worked in the film industry, one was a bookkeeper, then there was a sound engineer. Like, we need a sound engineer. I was just saying that. I don't know if that was recorded, but... Um, and then her fifth and final husband was a doctor. So they lived together in a suburb of San Francisco, and she volunteered for the Senate campaign of a Republican candidate. Um, so she did have four children, like I said. That was, like, pretty normal then. I feel like four children's maybe, like, kind of a bigger family now. But um, by 1975, only one of her children was still living with her. The rest had been adopted by her mother. Um so it kind of like danced around her mental health without getting too much into the specifics before, but um, the articles I found said that she was described as always being a little odd or like a little off. Um, according to her friend, she had developed an obsession with Patricia Hearst. Um, if you want to know more about Patty Hearst, you can check out our episode. Natalie actually covered her. Um, I don't remember the exact number, but I'm sure you could Google it. It's, I think, 19 or cults, one of our cults episodes. So, Yes, I, I meant to look it up and then I, I just didn't. So We also re-released it, so there's two out there, oh, guys. Oh, cool. Listen. Perfect. <laughs> Listen to both. <laughs> so just to recap, uh, Patty was an heiress kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army. Her father, Randolph Hearst, ended up starting an organization called People in Need, or PIN, to help feed people who were struggling financially because he was accused of committing crimes against the people. He was like a newspaper magnet guy, I believe. Um, but so... Uh, 
she, Sarah had actually started to volunteer for the PIN organization. So when she started this position, she told people that like God had sent her. But like, to me, that's not the most unusual thing in the world to be like, working in a volunteer organization and saying like oh god sent me here i guess it depends on like how you say it like did god whisper in your ear and tell you that you were going to come here and like all these grandiose thoughts or was it just like oh like i believe in god it's my calling to help others uh depends on how you look at it but um while she was working there, she maintained... So, that was the thing about Sarah. I call her Sarah. I don't know if she's, like, supposed to be Sarah Jane. I don't understand, like, the whole first name, middle thing, name, when you're supposed to include it, when you're not. Um, but, so, I, I'm calling her Sarah. But, so, the thing about her is she just... As opposed, when compared with, like, Squeaky, whose, like, literal name was Squeaky, um she just seemed so normal she just presented as just like a typical kind of mom um so while she was working there she you know she just wore like blue slacks a camel blazer a string of pearls that like stereotypical housewife string of pearls um so she had started out by forcing her way into a role as pins press person and then later worked for the organization as a volunteer bookkeeper um so she actually had gotten close with Robert Hurst. Um, she gained his trust, but she didn't have the best reputation with the rest of the volunteers. Supposedly, she would act like aggressively professional at some times, and then other times she would just be like irrationally angry. Um, Sarah was started to become so ingrained in the left-leaning activist community that she was approached by the FBI. They recruited her as an informant after seeing her work at PIN and asked her to start attending other meetings of various leftist groups and just, they were like, hey, can you take notes for us? Um, so she wasn't, she wasn't paid to attend these meetings and take notes, but the FBI did pick up any of her expenses. So like, I don't know, gas, dinner. Um, it's like in Judas and the Black Messiah. Not cool FBI. I haven't, I haven't cool. seen it yet, but... I need to see that movie. Anyway, um, so even though Jane seemed like a bit erratic, she had an ability to turn on the charm for everyone she met. So she was like telling the FBI about all the radical leftist groups, but she was also telling the groups about the FBI's interest in them. She even earned herself the nickname of FBI lady within the circle. So she was a double agent she it doesn't sound like she was doing this out of the goodness of her heart for either like it just seemed like she wanted to please whoever was in front of her um or maybe she was also just really bad at keeping secrets <laughs> yeah but what is our motivation for telling people secrets because we want to like gain trust or we want people to like us well i think some people just can't shut up <laughs> that's fair don't at me natalie <laughs> I'm just speculating, okay? I'm speculating about what was going on in her head at this time. So nobody knows exactly what took place in her head leading up to the assassination. Some speculate she felt she had to choose between these two sides. Would she continue to support the establishment or would she, like, lean more into the left-leaning activists? 
Um, a few days before the event, Sarah called the San Francisco Police Department and said she wanted, she just, you know, wanted to do a test on the president's security system as one does you know, just a test, just being a good citizen. So she was like, all right, I'm going to bring my fully loaded gun and I'm going to try to get close to the president. But I'm just I'm just trying to help you guys out. Like, I, I just want to see if I can do it. And then, you know, I really you should be thanking me. I'm doing you this huge favor, uh, free security testing. Uh, and the police were like, no. You can't do that. So she was picked up on an illegal handgun charge and they confiscated her 44 caliber revolver and 113 rounds of ammunition. Apparently, though, that like wasn't enough to warrant an arrest or at least like a police tale while the president was in town. Uh, she wasn't even prevented from buying another gun. So she went out, purchased a new one, and she was, you know, as she was driving afterwards, she was like speeding through the downtown saying she was hoping she might be apprehended or stopped, which I think is not an uncommon thing to feel if you feel like you're being driven to commit an act that you don't want to do um, by like some internal force but I'm not sure that the insanity defense applies here or what the reasoning was for sharing that um, but she was in San Francisco on September 22nd 1975 in a crowd outside of President Ford's hotel she was probably able to get so close because like I said she looked normal she was standing in the crowd wearing some baggy tan pants and a neatly pressed blue raincoat. She was standing in line. She, like, I think this goes to show kind of how distorted her thinking was at the time, but she was thinking, like, oh, am I going to be able to pick my son up on time after this? That was what her thoughts were. So when Ford was exiting the hotel, she fired her 38 caliber revolver about 40 feet away from the president. Fortunately for him, the sights on the gun were about six inches or 15 centimeters for any uh, international listeners off the point of impact at the distance, making her just narrowly miss the president. When Sarah missed, she raised her arm to take another shot. It was then that Oliver Sipple, a bystander who happened to be a former Marine, saw what was happening and dove toward her, grabbing her arm and possibly saving the president's life. The second shot ricocheted and hit a 42-year-old taxi driver named John Ludwig, but he survived. Uh, I can imagine that the Secret Service was like, oh crap, not again, because literally not too long ago, someone had also tried to assassinate the president um i feel like i don't know that's just nuts um so they threw president ford into a waiting vehicle and they drove him to safety um so a u.s district judge samuel conti he was the one who would end up sentencing more said he believed sarah would have killed ford if it weren't for her faulty gun which makes sense because she was so close you know it sounded like she knew what she was doing and was very convicted to this um but so sarah was evaluated by dr gustav wieland a psychiatrist before her trial who said she couldn't be described as psychotic 
While she came across as strange and maybe had a tough time making relationships, she still had an idea of what she was doing. So, and that's the thing with the insanity plea, is that even if it's a matter of, did I, do you know the difference between right and wrong at the time of committing the act? Um, And so if, even if she had kind of delusional thinking, even if she, or even if she had delusional thinking, if she knew the difference between right and wrong, then it still is not protected by, by the insanity plea then. Um, so she came across as strange, had a tough time making relationships, but she had an idea of what she was doing. Um, Sarah accepted her fate and pleaded guilty to attempted assassination, and she was sentenced to life in prison. So after the sentencing was read, Sarah said, am I sorry I tried? Yes and no. Yes, because it accomplished little except to throw away the rest of my life. And no, I'm not sorry I tried because at the time it seemed like a correct expression of my anger. So perhaps I just don't know enough about politics at the time, but I just don't get the sense that I don't know. Is it ever a good idea to kill anybody? Probably not. Um, Especially assassinating a president, even if you disagree with what they're doing politically, just like throws the country into a state of distress, you know, makes us vulnerable to attacks from like others. I don't really know. It's just a lot bigger than just murdering one person. Um, So... I don't know. Do you have an opinion? <laughs> no, keep going. I was just going to say, like, our most recent pre-this pre president, president, it's like I disagreed with so many things, but, like, would I go assassinate him? No. Um, there are other ways to, I think, like, be politically active. And, like, unless the president had, like, murdered someone, then, or I don't know. I think I'm just talking myself in circles, but I just don't think that you should kill anybody, and especially probably don't assassinate a president. Yeah, I think our general stance on this podcast, if you've been listening, is don't kill people unless it's, like, truly... Self-defense. Yeah, a matter of life and death. You are protecting someone, you are saving yourself, but, like, unequivocally. Don't be like, oh, I thought he had a gun, but didn't actually see. It turns out it was a chocolate bar. That's wrong. (laughs) I actually just listened. Uh, the most recent, I think, uh, last week tonight episode with John Oliver, he was talking mm-hmm. about stand your ground laws and how it they potentially like lead to increased violence because all people have to do is like prove that they were scared at the time or like felt like their life was in danger, even though it might not actually be in danger. Um, also, stand which your is ground, dangerous. like. I feel like nine times out of ten ends up protecting the person who ended up staying alive. Exactly. Well, because they're the one who has, like, the story, you know? It's just, like, I don't even hear that she was, like, very strongly politically motivated. Like, she was so 
die hard in her political beliefs that like she felt like she had to do this to me it sounds more like she was like trying to impress like a certain party or was trying to fit in and just like she didn't seem like she was thinking things through all the way if she was like oh well i'm gonna do this and then i'm mm-hmm. gonna go pick up my son from school or whatever um yeah, the reasoning wasn't at least for what we know wasn't fully there right so it takes a turn to she escaped from prison in 1989 i don't that wasn't that long ago um it's one thing if you escape from prison in like the 1920s i'm like okay what 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 was prison back then you could probably like (laughs) whittle a chicken bone into a key and like get your way out or whatever um ask excuse me can i go to the hotel down the street thanks um so she escaped from prison and turned herself in well it said she turned herself in but i think they all it was a combination of like getting caught and this article was a little confusing but anyway so her and another inmate they scaled a 12-foot fence surrounding the prison um so like about 30 miles down the road was when they ended up getting caught so they had hitchhiked there so they uh hitched a ride with an 18 year old new yorker david shelton ross and he dropped them off and he realized after like oh those two women were prisoners and so he called the police and he said he was surprised at who they were and that they didn't really seem nervous at all it wasn't like oh god we gotta get here so fast like it didn't seem like they just escaped prison um he said they were trying to get to the hospitality house which was a charitable institution for visitors to the prison one of them was cut probably from scaling that fence and was like oh i need to clean up all this blood on my coat and they well they had said that their car had broken down so maybe he thought that it had something like, to do with that wearing i don't know I feel like prison clothes <laughs> are kind of distinctive well i don't know he's an 18 year old maybe he was just like wow these ladies have some like weird fashion were people in in 1989 like wearing the orange prison get up i don't i don't know um but so they took a cab after they were dropped off dropped off by david and they paid in 67 quarters because that's all they had in in prison like they hoarded their money because they probably had quarters to like do laundry or whatever and that's kind of weird and could you imagine that's a crime in itself making someone count 67 quarters ridiculous 16 dollars yeah I mean, that's kind of, mm, I guess it's not expensive for a cab ride if you consider inflation. Yeah. Or maybe, I don't know. That's a, that's a lot of quarters. Like, you're just walking around with a, like, you're just, I'm surprised they didn't hear them just, like, jangling as they were <laughs> hopping over the fence. You would think you'd hear that from a mile away. But so they were noticed by a resort guard as they were, like, trying to make their way to the next stop. I think they were trying to get to the bus station police were called again so the police were like hot on hot on the scene um and then they were arrested so sarah said she did not escape to be caught and that she did it to keep her sanity she's like okay sarah she just needed a little bit of adventure you know i guess some some stimulation outside of the prison walls i get it here's the thing is i think this just goes to show it's just another example that she you know maybe her processing is not 
the way she processes things. You know, she's escaping prison. Well, it's like, well, where are you really going to go after that? Um, maybe she's just not able to think that far into the future. I think that's something that's common with like frontal lobe that, yeah, that's injuries. Yeah, is that sort of. people don't really think or can't really comprehend, you know, think about future events. Um, but so after the escape, she was transferred to a higher security facility. And this is the part that like confuses me. Even though she attempted to kill a president and had also escaped from prison, she was released on parole on December 31st, 2007. Like... So she's just among you, us. Yeah, you would think that someone who attempted to kill the president would be in jail forever. Yeah, I, th- I would assume that's a life in prison type of... I mean, it was life offense. in prison, but I guess she was eligible for parole. I I'm don't confused. understand this like eligibility for parole nonsense. I don't get it. <laughs> I don't know. Ugh. So she was interviewed by Matt Lauer in 2009. And, like, I've seen the videos of her. He said, you look like someone's grandmother. How is it possible this woman had made an attempt on a president's life? Um, so it just goes to show, too, maybe there was bias in how her case was handled or how she was treated because she just looks like a typical everyday woman. Um, so I watched a YouTube video where she was interviewed by CNN and she said that many people had talked about assassinating the president as like part of a cultural revolution. So perhaps in the groups that she was hanging around, like that's the message she was getting. Um, she said that she had done it because she was a nobody and it would be better for her to do it rather than one of the leaders within the groups because they were much more. I don't know if she was trying to say it would be better for her to do it because, like, then she would be the one who takes the fall or, like, they might get caught because they're more recognizable. And she said it never occurred to her that the story would go all over the world. Um, She was like, I didn't really think. And that, I guess, again, shows kind of this pattern of not thinking things through. Mm -hmm. But... So she served 32 years in prison total. She had some complaints at that time about still being on parole. And she, I don't know, too, she just kind of, like, denied that what she did was bad or didn't seem to grasp that concept. She was like, I'm... Because, like, the news person was like, oh, turning a new leaf. Like, do you feel like you've turned a new leaf? Do you feel like you've learned from this? And she was like what do you mean turning a new leaf i'm the same as i always was <laughs> it was it was confusing um but so remember oliver sipple the guy who mm-hmm. who jumped in uh so apparently president ford was hesitant to acknowledge oliver's act of bravery because he was gay so this is actually super messed up but so Oliver hadn't told his family that he was gay and was outed after he saved the president. So his family, his like backstory, his family was devout Baptist and Oliver had kind of a difficult upbringing. So um, he had dyslexia, which made school really challenging for him. And I don't think there was like as much treatment or, 
you know, knowledge about that back then. So he just really struggled in school. And he also was like having an identity crisis. He had to like hide who he was from his parents. Um, So he ended up dropping out of high school and joined the Marines. He also served a tour in Vietnam. And it was there that he was wounded twice. One time was in his head. So he was um, disabled after serving in the military. So he moved to San Francisco after his discharge, where there was a burgeoning, I hope I'm saying that right, burgeoning gay scene? Burgeoning? Yeah. Whatever. Um, That's right. (laughs) So he was um, immersed in the community, and he helped with the political campaign for Harvey Milk, the first openly gay elected official in California. He finally felt he had a community and a place that he belonged, but this was all uprooted after he saved the life of the president. Uh, and, like, he wasn't even there to see the president. He just, like, took this walk every single day, and he just happened to be there as this crowd was gathered to see him walk out of the, the hospital. Hospital? Hotel. hospitals on the brain, I guess. Um, So afterward, he tried calling news outlets to beg them not to use his real name. He said, I'm not a hero. I'm a live coward. It's probably the scariest thing that's ever happened in my whole life, which I think makes sense. You know, you don't jump in front. Uh, He just happened to be at the right place at the right time. Probably was scary as heck, you know, like, He didn't sign up. He probably just was like the closest person there. Um, So when the media learned of his sexual orientation, they decided to release this information. They didn't ask permission from Oliver and he ended up being shunned by his family. When his mother died, he was not welcome at the funeral. Um, And he didn't have a relationship with his father. He had a lot of siblings. I think it was like seven or eight siblings that just all shut him out. So he actually tried to sue seven newspapers and 50 publishing executives for $15 million for releasing the information about his sexuality, but it was dismissed because some of his friends and colleagues in the gay community knew that he was gay, which is not a good enough reason for me. Um, So uh, Oliver just had a really tough time after that. He received treatment for schizophrenia, alcoholism, among other health issues. He had been abandoned by his siblings, so there was no one that was able to like help step in and support him through these difficult times. And he was found dead in his apartment, February 3rd, 1989, with a half-gallon bottle of bourbon. The coroner estimated he had been dead for two weeks after or before being found, and they said he died of natural causes at the age of 47 but it sounds like it was an overdose which is so sad because it's like if he hadn't had if he hadn't had saved the president it sounded like his life was taking a turn for the better that he like Mm -hmm. had this belonging and you know just being rejected by his family had such a huge impact on him um well so we have to give president ford some credit he did So he didn't want to publicly thank Oliver, but he did end up sending him a written letter of thanks. Didn't get invited to the White House. Uh, Nope. You know, there wasn't like a public thank you or like whatever. Um, Nope. Sent a letter. What a guy. Your life was saved (laughs) and you 
all you did was write on a piece of paper. Seriously. So. Nah, that was messed up. Not cool. Not cool, Gerald, Gerald Ford, wherever you are. Seriously. That was... I honestly, I did not have any idea about how all of this went down. And even, well, even the articles at first, the ones at least talking about Sarah Jane Moores, they didn't really dive into the, the history of Oliver Sipple, but it's just such a sad story. Mm-hmm. Agreed. But also, so on that note, what an interesting that, lady. I mean, that's it. <laughs> I feel like. I'm I'm confused a, a lot about her. I yeah. don't. I think that there's something more going on that maybe just the articles I read like didn't quite dive into it. But to me, I just get a sense that there is more, more to the story. But for that reason, I'm like, why on earth was she like let out of prison? Maybe she really just is that aloof. Like nothing's wrong with her. She's just different. Wait, I wanted to go on a rant about why I hate this woman. (laughs) I was going to say, are you just going to dive right in? I don't know that we... Uh, Okay, everyone. (laughs) Okay, Um, so I'm doing the case of Yolanda Saldivar. um, And so I feel like a lot of people likely know who Yolanda Saldivar, or at the very least, you're likely likely, um, familiar with her case. this is also the second time that we're recording this, guys, because my audience guys, the first time. We are a mess. Like, this is terrible. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, Rachel has already heard my kind of tirade about how much I dislike this person. Um, yeah, now I, I can will- join in. <laughs> yeah, I will say that I... I've known about, like, this case and Yolanda Saldivar probably you know, for as long as I can remember, probably for 20 years. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Um, and I I think that she's probably the person I've disliked, possibly even hated the longest in my entire life. And, you know, I'm not the type of person who shies away from hating people. Um, so, no. Um, yeah. And so I... I remember um, when I told when I told Jarrell that I was going to do this case, he was like so happy for me because he was like, you've had this on your heart for a really long time. (laughs) And um, no, I I literally check every year to make sure she hasn't been released from prison. Not that I would do anything if she was. I just feel better knowing that she's there. Um, But yeah, I'm jumping to the end. (laughs) Of course. Before her death in 1995, Selena Quintanilla Perez had cemented her legacy as the queen of Tejano music. Landing her first recording contract at the age of 10, she started as the she started out as the front woman for the band Selena y Los Dinos alongside her siblings AB and Suzette Quintanilla, and um, like the band was managed by their dad Abraham who like he was a part of the original Los Dinos and was trying to like live vicariously through his kids guys watch the 1996 movie starring Jennifer Lopez as Selena it's very good <laughs> you'll get the oh, whole oh isn't backstory. she she's um back together with what's his face Ben Affleck uh, Ben Affleck yeah I saw that, but then I was listening to another podcast um, called Ratchet and Respectable, starring Demetria L. Lucas, um, and she was like, 
She thinks that this whole thing between J-Lo, A-Rod, and Ben Affleck is um, just like all a show because nobody's talking about the fact that A-Rod has like racketeering and embezzlement charges right now <laughs> because everyone's talking oh. about what's happening with J-Lo and A-Rod. So. Well, yeah, plus isn't uh, Ben Affleck, wasn't he like under fire because he was sending messages to like 19-year-olds on that weird celebrity dating app? Um, I don't know. I have no idea. Is it bad to send? It was him and like Matthew Perry that were being criticized because they were just, I mean, I guess it's like all legal, but it's just creepy, you know? I mean, if it's like unsolicited stuff, I guess, but I mean, 19, you're an adult. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, but, I don't know mm, anything about that, so. I don't know. It It's just weird, <laughs> in my opinion, but. Yeah. Um, so by the time Selena was 20, she had gained, uh, pretty gained, pretty mainstream success um, uh, with the support of her bandmates, which by then also included her husband, Chris Perez. And so, like, you know, she was basically catapulted into superstardom. Um, And so in 1993, she became the first female Tejano singer to win a Grammy for Best Mexican or Mexican-American Album. By 1994, her album Amor Prohibido um, had become the best-selling Latin American album of all time, selling 5 million copies in the first year and more than 22 million worldwide. Selena had not only revolutionized the genre, but now she had introduced a whole new audience to Tejano music. In the early 1990s, Selena was arguably universally beloved by many, and her fan base was only growing as she slowly began working towards a crossover career into the U.S. mainstream music scene. Um, So more just like a pop career with like um, some elements of Tejano music. Um, Listen to like her song Dreaming of You, such a cute, beautiful song, which was released um, posthumously. I don't know if I've ever heard... A single song by her. I'm sure I've heard it, but I just don't know. You don't know that I know it. (laughs) Maybe I. I mean, that sounds familiar. I also too am just bad at names for things, and there was like some music or what was it? Vampire Weekend. Evan. Evan was like playing me songs from them, and I was like, I've never. I don't. I maybe recognize like one song, and he's like, "What? How? How do you?" I'm like, "I don't. I don't know. I didn't get out much when I was younger." And currently, don't get out much. <laughs> I get that. That's valid. Um, yeah, that I, that happens. Definitely check it out. You know, she's got. I mean, most of her stuff is in Spanish, but she has. They released her um, her like crossover album posthumously, and so she has some like English songs, um, like "Dreaming of You," which is very nice. Um, Anyway, so uh, by the mid-1990s, Yolanda Saldivar had become a new fan of Tejano music, but she wasn't as initially taken with Selena as many others had been. The 31-year-old in-home nurse preferred other musicians over Selena and had resented Selena because she was winning awards in categories that her other favorite Tejano artists were nominated in. And I'm like, somebody has to win, somebody has to lose, it's not that serious. It's just an award show that means nothing. It's inconsequential. Yeah, who really cares? I right. can't. Ugh. 
I spent most of my life is a huge Usher fan. I can't tell you what awards he, awards he's won. Okay. <laughs> um. Anyway, so in. In 1991, Yolanda's niece took her to a Selena concert, and Yolanda saw what so many others did. Selena's amazing stage present, her unmatched talents, talent, and um, catchy songs. And she quickly became a convert. Yolanda had loved the that Selena performance so much that she needed to memorialize the occasion with a souvenir. And so she went around to like all of the different like um, kind of like um, merch looking for like through the newsstands and different like tables outside of the venue, hoping to find some merch. But there was nothing there. And so she had the idea of starting a fan club to promote Selena in the San Antonio, Texas air like area. And so I had made this comment last time and I think that you um I don't I, I forgot what your response was but I think it's odd to go to somebody's concert like the first time and then like be like create their fan club like you didn't like them yesterday you go to their concert today and now you're president of their fan and club. and you're like I can't find a t-shirt and now I'm president of the fan club I don't know it's yeah it's strange but that I mean also hindsight because I'm, I'm judging everything that this woman does very harshly, um, very unforgiving. How, and how old is she when all this is happening? She's 31, and so Selena is probably about 20, 19 or 20, maybe. Yeah, I think that's a little bit weird, too. I feel weird, like, listening to new... Holy cow! Can like people relax? Yeah, I've got birds. I've got motorcycle <laughs> sounds. Sorry, guys. It's a symphony. Um, yeah, I feel weird listening to people whose music that's, like, younger than me. Not, like, that much younger, but also, like, I don't know. How, I, how much can I really relate to, like, a 16-year-old or, like, <laughs> early 20s, like, releasing music? <laughs> I agree. I listened to the Olivia Rodrigo album. And so I wasn't, like, a super big... Like, I know a lot of people, even our age, when Driver's License came out, they're like, oh, I this like is it. a bop. They liked it. I really only liked that one part, like, towards, like, the mid-end where, like, the breakdown, where I feel like you kind of have to dealt it out. Could you me what you wrote in that song about me? Because <laughs> you said forever, now I drive along past your street. And then it's like, Ren! Ren! You should post a video of you singing this. I don't think so. I think it would be great. Pull out your ukulele. Um, But yeah, I listened to that whole album and, you know, I'm not saying that it was bad, but it was like so hard for me to get into it for a couple of reasons. One, every like song is the same. And I'm like, I'm sorry that he broke your heart, but you're 19. Like, you'll be okay. Um, But yeah, it was just, it was, I'm like, this is your, this is like, I can't remember like getting my driver's license. (laughs) I, when I was getting my driver's license, I was driving my dad's car and I couldn't figure out how to roll the windows down and it was really uncomfortable. So they like walked up to the car and they were like, roll your window down. And I like couldn't figure out where the button was because I wasn't used to driving his car. So then I just opened the door. The only thing I remember about getting my driver's license is my parents didn't want me to get my driver's license. And so in Florida, you could get your permit at 15, license at 16. And so my parents were like, nope, you're a girl. You can't get your license. And I'm like, 
uh, your sexism is showing. Um, and so when I was 17, starting my senior year, I like full on boycotted. I'm like, you're about to have high school dropout. I'm not going to school if I have to ride the bus. I'm done. Like, I'm over it. Like, I fully protested. And so my dad brought me to get my license. And I just, I remember, like, like my three-point turn, according to my dad, was, like, a six-point turn. And... <laughs> You're just and, excelling. But the You're entire just doing time, it so remember, extra well. <laughs> I remember knowing. I'm like, all right, I got to keep adjusting myself. And I remember, like, basically, like negotiating with the like drivers whatever the person grading me and I was like so in a real life situation you know if I had made this turn and I wasn't you know perfect I would adjust myself right you know we're this is a real life situation like <laughs> mm-hmm. no so that's fair like, I was just like negotiating throughout the whole time but I got my license so I actually read a stop light not stop light um stop sign well because it was like one of those weird made up stop signs that they just put in like a parking lot Mm -hmm. and it wasn't like in front of a store or anything so i was just so nervous that i didn't even see it and they were like uh well you ran that stop sign but did you get your license yeah they were like whatever just i don't know they must i must have been so nervous Every time I drove, I was so... I was the opposite of you, where I was the only, like, senior in my driver's ed class, and I was, like, taking the bus as a senior, because I was just, like... So, I was too nervous, and I wasn't going to get a car anyway to, like, drive, so I was like, whatever. Um, And every time I would drive, like, I would have to, like, peel my hands off the steering wheel. (laughs) It was always covered in sweat, and I was so embarrassed. And, like, the kid that was my driving partner he was like obviously younger than me which like only by a year not that big of a deal but in high school it's like all the difference oh my god you're born when he like his parents had like already taken him driving a bunch like he already knew what he was doing didn't even really need like instruction from the teacher whereas like my first day driving in the class was my first day driving and I like didn't even know like what was the gas and what was the brakes anyway back to this case um so uh yeah Yolanda was like I want to be a fan club president or she wants to start a fan club whatever and so she tried getting in touch with Selena's manager who as I said was her dad Abraham um and so according to Yolanda she left him three messages to call her back but according to Abraham she left more like 15 who knows who's telling the truth I believe Abraham a little bit more but again I'm my opinion is very colored by this. Um, and so when she and Abraham finally spoke, he agreed to Yolanda starting a fan club for his daughter. So in June of 1991, Yolanda became the founder and president of the Selena fan club. In her role, Yolanda was in charge of membership benefits and collecting membership fees, which was $22. And so in exchange for that $22, um, uh, members would get uh, promotional Selena products, uh, which included a T-shirt with Selena's like name logo on it, exclusive printed interviews with the band, a fact sheet about Selena y Los Dinos, and notifications of upcoming concerts. Because the internet wasn't what it is today. Was there? There was internet in the nineties, right? I think that's when it was just starting. Okay. Yeah. Like the internet was like 
one big old room. No, a computer was one big room. <laughs> I have no idea. I know nothing. I know nothing about what happened before I was born. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, and so any profits that were collected uh, from the fan club members were to be donated to charity. And so during Yolanda's first few months on fan club duty, Suzette, Selena's sister, was the contact person between her and the Quintanillas, including Selena. And it was so it wasn't until December 1991 that Yolanda finally got to meet the singer and they hit it off. The two became close friends and the Quintanilla family began to really trust her. By 1994, great year, Yolanda had uh, signed up more than 8,000 fans. According to television news reporter and anchor woman Maria Celeste Araras, again, I don't think I'm pronouncing that correctly. My R's are not what they used to be. <laughs> um, <clears throat> uh, so yeah, according to Maria, Yolanda had become the most efficient assistant ever. The singer that the singer had ever had, rather. Um, Maria wrote that people described how eager Yolanda was to impress and please Selena, and she did anything that Selena told her to do. One person told Maria that if Selena said jump, Yolanda would jump three times. By this time, Yolanda had decided to give up her career as an in-home nurse for patients with terminal cancer and respiratory diseases to fully invest her time in running the Selena fan club, even though she earned more money as a nurse than as a fan club president. That's also ridiculous. Like, that is such a... I guess, you know, if she didn't enjoy the work or it was, like, too hard. Like, but giving up that career to run a fan club? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and again, like all of the money from the fan club was donated to charity. So she really wasn't making like much, like if anything. Um, so interesting decision, I guess. So Yolanda was receiving tokens of affection from Selena, which was something that she wasn't accustomed to. Her room became covered with Selena posters and pictures, burning votive candles, and a library of Selena videos, which she would play to entertain guests. She would literally like have people come over and be like, let me show you my museum of Selena. Please sit down and watch all of her concerts with me. I would never go over to her house if that was what was waiting for me. For real? <laughs> yeah. That's just weird. Yeah. And so during an interview with Yolanda in 1995, reporters from the Dallas Morning News said her devotion to Selena bordered on obsessive. Meanwhile, Selena's career continued to soar. She had even taken a step into the design and entrepreneurial world as a clothing designer and owner of several boutiques called Selena, etc. But on account of her being a literal musical superstar performing in literally sold out arenas, um, Selena wasn't able to devote as much time to managing the day to day of her businesses as she wanted to. And so her father supported the idea of Yolanda stepping in as manager given that Yolanda had been successfully managing the fan club for three years. So they gave her the job and even signed Yolanda as Selena's registered agent, which I don't know. I did like a very quick Google and it's like some sort of like business thing where you like sign. Basically, this person becomes you <laughs> for legal purposes in terms of managing your business. Like they can sign your checks and blah, blah, blah. Um, hmm. 
And so in her new role, as I said, uh, Yolanda had the authority to write and cash checks. She now had access to the bank accounts associated with the fan club and the boutiques. And she even had access to Selena's American Express card to use for business purposes. Do you guys think she used the card just for business purposes? No. Probably not. (laughs) Um, And so... Yolanda told employees at Selena, etc., that she wanted to be like Selena. And others felt that she was possessive of her relationship with Selena, even going as far as like distancing Selena from other employees. Yolanda said her reason for distancing the employees from Selena was to shield her from the petty issues of managing her boutiques and employees. Along with the responsibility of running the boutiques and the fan club, Yolanda went with Selena on trips and had keys to um, Selena's house. Uh, So her house with her husband, which it's a little much. I don't think I'd give anyone a key to my house. Not even my parents. (laughs) What Um, What about for like emergencies if you got like locked out? No. Like, does anyone have a key to your apartment? I mean, no, but I don't have that. I'm not supposed to, like, make duplicates of my keys, so... (laughs) Fair point. So, not long after um, Yolanda, you know, started this role at the boutique, Selena started getting complaints from her employees, her fashion designer, and her cousin about Yolanda's management skills. According to them, Yolanda was mismanaging Selena's affairs... She was manipulating their decisions. Several of, like, the, um, like, all of the clothes were, like, hand-sewn. And so several of the people, including the fashion designer, were like, yeah, you know, I would, like, leave for lunch and I'd be halfway through a dress. And then I'd come back and, like, the zipper would be ripped off. Um, So Yolanda was really great. Um, She was also intimidating and threatening them, and she had even been secretly recording them without their consent or knowledge. By December of 1994, Selena's fashion business was starting to struggle. They were having trouble paying their bills. The staff was removed, reduced by more than um, 50% because Yolanda fired anyone that she didn't like or who she perceived as a threat to her relationship with Selena. And so... I guess assuming, like, anyone that she thought would complain to Selena, um, whatever, I I just feel like she's doing too much. Um, And so by now, Selena and Yolanda were close friends, and so Selena had a very difficult time believing that her friend Yolanda would ever do anything to impose or interfere with her fashion business. Then Abraham began receiving complaints from employees, too. Basically, the employees who were now going to him were just hoping that he'd be able to do something to get Yolanda removed from the business, or at least removed from her role. Um, He wasn't as trusting of Yolanda at this point, and he attempted to convince Selena that Yolanda might be a bad influence. And so, like... I think right now, like, he didn't necessarily have any evidence that, like, crazy, sinister things were happening, but if you have a ton of employees that are really unhappy and quitting and complaining, it's probably a good reason to reassess what's going on. Um, cough, cough, our last workplace. <laughs> um, I was just raising my eyebrows, but I realized that that doesn't <laughs> translate <laughs> over. Okay, just making sure. I was um, like, ooh. <laughs> 
in January of 1995, Abraham started um, getting letters and calls from really angry and upset fans because they sent their enrollment fees for the fan club and they didn't receive anything that their membership promised. Abraham started digging around and through his investigation, he learned that Yolanda had used forged checks to embezzle $30,000 or $60,000. Different sources said different things. And so, I don't know, check out the sources. And so she was embezzling, you know, one of those amounts from the fan club and the boutiques. She had even used the American Express business card to rent town cars to drive her around entertain her friends in like hoity-toity restaurants and to buy two cell phones which I guess for the early 90s very big deal in March of 1995 the Quintanilla family held a meeting to discuss the missing funds Yolanda's answers to Abraham's questions were not convincing Um, and he informed her if she could not prove her innocence and explain where the missing funds had gone that he was going to get the police involved Selena and Chris were especially dissatisfied with Yolanda's explanation of what happened to the money and all of the other mismanaged affairs. The next day, the family banned Yolanda from contacting Selena ever again. Abraham had even had to chase her off of the family's production studio property, uh, letting her know that she was no longer welcome there. On March 10th, Selena had Yolanda's name removed from all financial accounts. The next day, Yolanda purchased a 38 caliber revolver and hollow point bullets designed to cause more damage than normal bullets. She told the clerk that she was a nurse and her patient's family had threatened her, so she needed protection. According to Abraham, after this point, Yolanda had several failed attempts at murdering Selena. On March 13th, Yolanda saw her lawyer and wrote her letter of resignation, and then she drove from San Antonio, Texas, to Corpus Christi, Texas, which is where Selena and her family lived. Selena flew back into town the next day, at which point she was contacted by Yolanda to schedule a meeting. Even though they both were in Corpus Christi, Yolanda told Selena that there was too much traffic to meet in town, and they ended up meeting in a parking lot 25 miles outside of town. When they got there, Yolanda told, sorry, Selena told Yolanda that she could continue to manage the company's Mexico affairs. Basically, Selena had wanted to keep Yolanda on board, so until they had like a replacement um, to cover, you know, all of the different things that Yolanda had been responsible for. According to Chris and Abraham, during that meeting, Yolanda showed Selena the gun that she bought and um, told, and Selena told her to get rid of it. Yolanda expressed concerns about Selena's dad, but Selena said that she would protect her from Abraham. Abraham believes that Selena saying that had calmed Yolanda down enough, and that was the reason that she did not kill Selena in the parking lot that day. The next day, Yolanda returned the gun, which I think kind of um, potentially supports Abraham's you know theory there. Then on March 26th, Yolanda stole a perfume sample, which was like from like, you know, some perfume designer person for, um, I assume like a line of perfumes that Selena was going to come out with. Um, and she also stole, um, bank statements from Selena in Mexico. Um, 
And then she traveled with Selena to Tennessee. And that's when Selena told her that she was aware that the bank statements and the samples were missing. And she asked Yolanda to return them once they got back to Texas. The next day, back in Texas, Yolanda repurchased the gun and asked Selena to meet her at a motel. Fans heard news about Selena's whereabouts, and they were everywhere hoping to catch a glimpse of the singer. Abraham believes that this was Yolanda's second attempt to kill Selena, but she didn't go through with it because witnesses. Um, On March 30th, Yolanda checked into a Days Inn motel. She got in touch with Selena and told her that she had been raped. Abraham said that this was the last message they received from Yolanda. She asked Selena to visit her at her motel room alone, but Selena's husband, Chris, went with her. According to Chris, he waited by his truck as Selena went alone to Yolanda's motel room to get the bank statements. As they were driving back to their house, Selena noticed Yolanda did not give her the correct bank statements. Still, Yolanda continued contacting Selena through her pager, begging Selena to take her to the hospital that night because, according to Yolanda, uh, and this is a little graphic, um, she was bleeding due to the assault um, that took place a few days prior. Abraham believes Yolanda was just trying to get Selena back to the motel room alone. Selena was told by Chris that it was too late and he didn't want her to go there alone. But unbeknownst to Chris, Selena had agreed to meet Yolanda the next morning to get the correct statements and the stolen perfume samples. On March 31st, Selena left her house at 7.30 a.m. and headed for the motel. When she got there, Yolanda asked Selena to take her to uh, the hospital to be examined for the assault that, again, she claimed happened several days prior. They went to Doctors Regional Hospital in Corpus Christi. There there was like some apparent tension because everything that Yolanda was telling the staff was the complete opposite of what she had been telling Selena to get Selena one to her motel room and to, um, the hospital. So, um, Selena was just like frustrated and confused. Um, and again, you know, I feel like Rachel and I say it all the time, you know, survivors of assault, survivors of abuse, survivors of trauma, you know, don't always remember every single detail and over time you know they might remember things differently or explain things differently um and you know again believe women and all that but (laughs) I don't believe that an assault took place personally um I think that this was all just a elaborate ruse to get Selena where Yolanda wanted her um anyway Mm -hmm. So, either way, because Yolanda lived in San Antonio and the alleged rape happened in Mexico, the staff at this hospital said that she would have to get a rape kit examination at a local hospital in San Antonio because the American health care system is so great. Like, it's so great, guys. I'm, I just... What, what difference does it make, like, what city she gets an examination oh in? I just think God. it's dumb. Especially in the case of something, like, the sooner you can do a rape kit, the better, right? Um, and in this case, you already have, supposedly, several days have gone by. Um, so, I don't know. It just seems stupid, but that's beside the point. By 10 a.m., Selena's family began to worry about her. Chris called her, and Selena told him that she'd be at the studio soon once she finished taking care of one last item of business. That was the last time Chris and Selena would speak. Back at the motel, Yolanda and Selena began to argue. Selena just wanted the bank statements and samples back. 
She grabbed Yolanda's bag and poured everything out. She found the correct statements and she saw Yolanda's gun. At that point, Yolanda grabbed the gun and as Selena attempted to run out of the room, Yolanda shot her one time in the back and chased her out of the room yelling the B word. Uh, Selena collapsed in the motel lobby asking for help. According to the staff, her last words were Yolanda, room 158. The ambulance got there in under two minutes. The bullets had severed one of Selena's arteries and she was losing blood fast. She died upon arrival to the hospital. I read that like one of the doctors, it was one of those situations where um, like if the bullet had been like a a millimeter to the left or like up or down, um, she would have had like a better chance. And so, yeah, super, super disappointing. And like she was 23 at the time so a literal baby yeah like i i mean i can't imagine getting shot now i can't imagine have got it like getting shot at 23 like that's just awful i don't know Ugh. anyway so yolanda barricaded herself in her truck beginning a several hours long standoff with the police she refused to comply with police requests to get out of the car instead holding the gun to her head threatening suicide She cried out, I can't believe I killed my best friend. A SWAT team and an FBI crisis negotiation team were brought in to help defuse the situation. Um, And, you know, at this point, I believe negotiators were pretty much just saying whatever they could to get um, Yolanda to peacefully surrender. Um, Nothing that would drive her over the edge um, to either hurt herself or hurt police officers. Um, And so, yeah, they... They just said a lot of things. And so one of the negotiators um, suggested to Yolanda that maybe the gun went off accidentally. And so that's when Yolanda changed changed her story from, I killed my best friend um, and like taking much more ownership over, you know, pulling the trigger to saying that the gun went off by itself. Then around the fourth hour of the standoff, one of the negotiators had gotten Yolanda to say that she actually had intended to kill herself, but Selena stopped her. Um, and so in this version of events, Yolanda said that as Selena left, she asked um, Yolanda not to close the door or Yolanda asked Selena not to close the door, one or the other. Um, and at that point, the gun just went off. Um, and so still after that kind of version of events, the standoff continued for another five hours uh, for a total of more than nine hours until Yolanda surrendered. The devastation of Selena's assassination was felt around the world. The public reaction has been compared to the aftermath of the assassinations of John Lennon and John F. Kennedy, RIP. Manana, I was doing so well. (laughs) Manamana. Manamana. So Madonna and Gloria Estefan Oprah, Mark Anthony, Mariah Carey, President and First Lady Bill and Hillary Clinton, to name a few, all sent condolences and paid tribute to the singer. Texas governor, a little man you might have heard of, George W. Bush, uh, even declared Selena's birthday, Selena Day in Texas, saying Selena represented the essence of South Texas culture, which I'm proud of that move by a by George W. Bush. I feel like the the previous occupant um, 
kind of made us all forget a little bit how not great George W. Bush was. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I, I appreciate that. Not appreciate, but I think that was a cool move on his part as governor. It was the least he could have done. The least he could have done. Um, and so back at the police station, Yolanda Wright waived the right to an attorney. Her bail was set to $500,000, and it was reported that gang members were actually attempting to raise the bail themselves so that she would be released and they could carry out vigilante, vigilante justice. The Mexican mafia reportedly placed a price on Yolanda's head and spread the word that if anyone in prison carried out the hit, they would be a hero and they'd be taken care of. The public perception of Yolanda made it challenging for her to even get a defense attorney, as most defense attorneys were worried about the harm that could come to them and their career if they represented her. Yolanda's trial for the assassination of the beloved singer has also been compared to that of O.J. Simpson's trial for the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. Even people in South America, Europe, Australia, and Japan were tuned in to the trial. Yolanda stuck to her final version of events, saying that the shooting was an accident and pled not guilty. On October 23rd, 1995, after two hours of deliberation, which I'm surprised it took that long, um, (laughs) the jury turned in a verdict of guilty. Yolanda received the maximum life sentence, uh, the maximum sentence of life in prison, rather, with no eligibility for parole for 30 years. Um, and so sadly, she will be eligible for parole on March 30th, 2025. But I don't know. Maybe they'll keep her in. <laughs> still got a couple, couple years. I mean, she's old now. How much longer? Like, just keep her in there. It's fine. Mm-hmm. It's whatever. Um, but yeah, I just like all of this I cannot rational I mean I can't rationalize most assassination 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 attempts um this one I can't rationalize at all like you know they could have already have gotten to the police and like turned her in and she could have mm-hmm. been in like such like intense legal trouble but instead they were like yo just give us back our statements and like get out of our lives and you know I guess her obsession was that like deep a little bit with Selena where and again this is just my interpretation of things um it was you you see those cases in like um like it's like an abusive relationship like you really where it's like if I can't have you nobody can have you exactly if you if you're not gonna be my best friend nobody like gets to be your best friend nobody gets to have you um and I mean you know even like with her trying to distance Selena from other like um employees and stuff like that just like really shows that possessiveness and you know feeling of ownership and so um and this also really speaks to the times where like one there's so much access I guess to you know this like superstar Mm -hmm. and um you know I feel like nowadays like pretty much every celebrity like doesn't leave their house without some kind of security almost right um at least when they're you know that I guess you know famous where you know they'd have a mob of fans like coming after them um so yeah that's the case of Yolanda Saldivar may she rot in person (laughs) 
Fair enough. <sighs> Anything to add before I stop? Nope. Cool. That was equally as disappointing the second time around. <laughs> oh, gosh. Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast. <laughs>